0: Hello, church. My name is Alice, and we'll now be reading today's passage from Psalm 88, 1 through 18. Please follow along in your own Bibles or on the screen above me. Psalm 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to shoal. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in in the land of forgetfulness? my companions have become darkness this is the reading of god's word
1: well good morning to you true north my name's Eugene i'm a member of the pastoral staff here uh really quick too that members meeting is not tonight at 12:30 uh it is sunday uh december 10th so just i know there was a A little bit of a typo, Uh, but I want to welcome you here, especially if you're new, if you're visiting. I'm glad you could join us this Sunday morning. Um, I know that passage, uh, pretty depressing, and you might think that it cut off early, but that is actually the entirety of that psalm, Psalm 88. Some often call it to be uh, one of the darkest texts in the Old Testament. Um, If you you physically open your Bible in the middle, that, that might be the psalm that kind of lies upon you. Um, That's how I actually read this. As a kid, I would always just, God, speak to me, and then it would be that. I was like, this is very depressing. Why is this in the Bible? And as we're going through our series on suffering, I know we talked a lot about, and we will talk also more of, what suffering does to the soul, how it transforms you, how God uses it, how he can turn you more to his intimacy. But today, what I want to do is take a pause and wonder and ponder with you, well, what are we to do while we're stuck in suffering? Whether it's physical, whether it's relational, whether it's the death of someone close to us, whether small or big, what do we do with the suffering that will not leave us, that we're stuck with? Because I truly believe this psalm and much of the psalms have much wisdom and guidance for us. Uh, you know, at an early age, remember, I was, I was like around the age of five, and for some reason that year, uh, I'd have to attend with my family a multitude of funerals, um, of, of family friends, of members of our church, of even distant family members. And as, if you remember, um, if you're little, you know, the first instance you went to a funeral as a child, it's, it's one of the first instances that make you realize, oh, the world is not what I think it is. You know, the world isn't just fun and play. I remember driving to that funeral. It was it's a weird time for a kid because I'm five, six years old. You know, I'm just having fun. And I remember the whole time they're telling us that, hey, we're gonna meet with friends and family. You're gonna see your friends don't have fun. I remember my mom telling me that. Don't laugh, don't say anything, just sit there and shut up and just look and fake cry. I was like, whoa, this is crazy, right? So I go to that funeral, and it's weird, you see your friends, they're all dressed in black. And you're kind of wondering, like, oh, what do I do? And, you know, at at a young age, what you see and observe is so formative and it sticks with you. And one of the things that stuck with me in that Korean funeral especially was this. um, Anytime there was an expression of of suffering, of grief, anytime there was an emotional outburst, there was a Korean phrase that was always whispered kind of among the crowd or even to family members that were struggling. They would always say, oh, 힘내, right? 힘내. In Korean, what that means is kind of like, Cheer up, strengthen up. Don't show what you're actually feeling. Hide it. I remember I would hear that constantly at every funeral, and even at the end when you go to see the deceased in their casket, and you go to see the family members and they're suffering. They're, they're, you know, they can't control their emotions. And oftentimes, what I tell, what I hear my parents tell them is, you know, we're so sorry, and then also himne himne. Make sure you strengthen up. And I remember at a young age seeing that, and now that I'm 33, realizing how much of that emotional advice has now seeped into how I live life now. You know, in English, there's phrases like, hey, have a stiff upper lip, cheer up, pull yourself together. All in all, whether you're Asian, whether you grew up in the Western culture, what the culture tells you to do with your suffering is, you're taught, don't show it. Don't show that it hurts. Don't burden other people with your pain. Keep your tears inside of your eyes. Yet the Psalms, and especially this Psalm, Psalm 88, teaches us there is a beauty and power in what we call lament that God welcomes us to. There is a beauty and power to grieving that God invites us into when we do suffer, when we're stuck in suffering, whether it's physical, emotional, relational. Lament... To sum it up, it's a heart posture of grief and prayers of honesty to God. It's a posture of grief and prayers of honesty to God. And I would I would tell you this to begin: to truly lament the way that the scriptures guide us to do so. We need both. That we need to have space to grieve, to cry. To be broken, but at the same time to direct that honesty to someone, and then within our faith to God. When we refrain from lamenting, from grieving, what we allow suffering to do is that it keeps our souls weighed down, and as depressing and as dark. And I know to start a Sunday service to read, you know, we we're, re- we were seeing these songs of like Jesus, you're with me, and all of this good truth, and all of a sudden we read this 18 verse psalm of basically this guy saying, God, where in the world are you? Because I don't feel you. Well, what's the purpose in that? First is this. I want to show us that although a lament is easily describable, it's often extremely difficult for us to do so. Why is it so hard for us to lament, to grieve in suffering? You know, suffering is a timeless human condition. It's something that has, you know, cursed humanity since the fall in the Garden of Eden, but the prevalence of mourning and lamentation, it's, it's varied throughout cultures. And I would ask, and I would tell you this, especially within 2023, whether you're living in a Western culture, whether you come from a different culture, the cultures around you, what they tell you to do is just to mask your suffering, to hide it. There's a great movie with Aquafina called The, um, the Farewell, um, if you can watch it, it's great. It's about a Chinese family, and basically Aquafina plays a character where she finds out her grandma is diagnosed with terminal cancer. And what the family does to grieve in their own way is like, we're not going to tell her. We're going to fake it until she passes so that she doesn't have to bear that burden. And often for many of us, that's, that's our mindset. Hey, just ignore your suffering. Don't let others know. And just kind of power through. Why is it so hard for us to lament? Why is it so hard to confess that we are hurting? Well, the first problem is this, that we have a control problem. Uh, most of our practices and habits in suffering has been to mask it, to overcome it. Uh, you know, there's a Greek philosophy called Stoicism, where basically it entails, you know, you don't allow any suffering, you don't allow any pain to hinder you. You don't show it, you ignore it, and you kind of toughen up and walk through. I, I, I believe there's some merit and wisdom to that. There's some biblical wisdom to that. But I would tell you this. One of the most challenging facets of suffering is that it, there, it has an ability to disrupt your thinking and your pursuit of godlike control over your life, the reason at these Korean funerals the, the parents whispered him, the, him, the, the reason people tell you, "Hey, toughen up, cheer up is because we, we want to mask our suffering because for many of us we don 't want to admit our human mortality. like we know this even culturally in Hollywood, how does Hollywood depict? What we should do when we suffer. Go to the bar. Why do you go to the bar? To get drunk. Why do you get drunk? To, you get drunk so you numb yourself out from the pain that you feel. That's, that's kind of like, oh, wh- wh- what do you do when you suffer? Oh, just have a night out. Kind of numb yourself to whatever you're going through. Why, why, why is that? Why, why is it that what the culture tells us to do with suffering is almost narcotic? Is to hide it. It's because deep down inside, what suffering reveals to us is that although we pursue godlike control over our life, we have none of it, but we are human, we're finite, we're frail. In Genesis 3.19, after Adam and Eve have fallen, God tells Adam this, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's a passage repeated um, heavily in the book of Ecclesiastes, which uh, is is a great book to read. And it's just a reminder that this, you are human, you don't have control, and suffering reminds us of that truth. And to go even further, I would would propose this. When we follow the cultural programming of just, hey, I'm going to just ignore my suffering, strengthen up, I'm just going to get through everything, what that does is that it denies your humanity. That to be human is to dream, is to have convictions, but to be human is to be hurt. To be human is to be finite. To be human is to suffer. Lament, it entails a total surrender of the self. It's recognizing that suffering shows us that we are outside the sphere of our own control. We have a control problem. That's why it's so hard for us to grieve. But second, some of us have a theology problem. Um, some of us mistakenly think to lament or to grieve or even to complain to God, oh, that is unholy, that all of our prayers should be perfectly crafted sermons, that we should never have a complaint, because if we have Jesus, then you know, everything is fine. There's a movie called The Lego Movie. I had to watch it a couple times because of uh, my son uh, side, right? But there's one song in the movie. It's like, everything is awesome. Everything is cool if you're part of a team, Right? And I would say this, um, that, that describes much of American theology, this idea that like once I've decided to follow Jesus, then everything must be awesome. Even when I lose, I, I can be cheerful and praise because Jesus is with me. All my blessings should line up perfectly, but that is not true. Others of us, we might even feel almost unholy to grieve, to complain, to whine even to God because it feels wrong. Right? We, we it, you're kind of taught, you know, to be an adult is to not. It's just kind of show that you're, you're, imp, you're, like nothing can penetrate you. That you are stronger than what you're going through. So we bring that kind of thinking also to God. But all of that is broken theology. I, I talked about this last week, but so, so many of us believe that if things are going well, God is with us. If things are not, God has left us. If you read the Old Testament, that is completely untrue. God remains with those who are broken. God actually is even closer to those who suffer. And when you look at this psalm in particular, the question should arise, why in the world is this psalm here? Those verses are it. There's no like verse 19 where he says, oh, but God, I believe in you. It just ends with the companion that you left me with, God, is darkness. It begins and ends with literal darkness. Why is this here? Well, God chose that psalm to be there. You know, in the beginning, um, I, I don't think, I, I told Alice not to read this, but in the beginning of every psalm, before the text, there's an inscription of like what this psalm is. And if you didn't know, the psalms are a collection, it's basically a praise book. Each psalm is a song of the time of the temple worship for Jews. And in this psalm 88, it's kind of in the beginning, it says, A, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master according to Malath Leniath, a makil of Herman the Azorite. All that to be said, this is literally, it was in the rotation of worship. And, you know, a quick side note, and this is nothing on our praise team, because they don't write our songs. We have none of these type of songs in our kind of worship, right? Every song, there's the Hillsong Bridge of like, life sucks, but everything will be awesome. Everything will be cool if I'm part of God's team, right? That's, that's ultimately a lot of our worship song. And there's truth to that. But what this psalm is showing us is this there was a regular cadence in the worship in the Jewish temples of lament. A song of life sucks. Period. Amen. That's it. What is that tell us? Well, it is a gift. The gift of this dark psalm is a stark realism that Scripture promises us this is the world you enter into with God. Scripture doesn't, doesn't it doesn't sell you something. That it is not you know i uh, i think jay and i were talking a couple uh this week and the movie princess bride came up right and we're talking about how like they don't make those type of movies no more just good like no remakes like i don't want to see like another version of teenage mutant Ninja turtles like, it's like the fifth version now but you know there's there's movies back in the 80s where it's just kind of like it's just standalone movies and there's a movie called princess bride if you haven't watched it i please do watch it and in that movie the main character, Wesley, is talking to Buttercup, the princess. If you don't know, it doesn't matter. But there's a line that's always stuck with me, where he says, Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says different is selling something. That's so true. I'm talking about, you know, when you're, if you're on Instagram recently, you get so many ads of, like, get rich quick. Like, you know, how many of us fell into NFTs and crypto? Right? Like, I, I'm one of them, too. I have a couple. Right? I have Dogecoin. I'm praying still that it'll rebound, right? Anything that tells you get rich quick, if you take this, all your problems will go away. If you sign up for this course, I'll make you a millionaire in 30 days. All of that is saying, hey, suffering is false. It's selling you something. It's hiding the fact that the world is broken and it sucks. And you would expect, if, if Christianity is something of that nature, and if you're skeptical here, you might think that like I'm still not sold on religion as a whole. You would think, well, if that's true, the scripture should be filled with that. Of like, hey, if you just pray this psalm, You'll be okay, but we don't see that. We have with us Psalm 88 a lament of someone stuck in suffering and things will not change. What that tells us is this to begin the idea of lament for us God wants to hear our grief, He wants our tears, He wants our suffering, He wants our complaints, He wants our anger. With the God that we worship, we have the space to lament, to suffer, to be in darkness with our God. So if that's true, if that's what is difficult in getting us to lament, well, how then can we lament? How can we grieve biblically? That's what I'm basically the premise of today's message. How do we get through suffering as Christians? Not ignoring it, not in rage, but in lament. If you're like me Um, no one's ever taught you how to grieve well. Actually, no, no one's taught you how to grieve. People have taught you how to ignore your suffering or ignore your pain. People have taught you how to wear your mask when you're in public so that no one sees it. But no one, if you're like me, no one has stepped into your life at an early age and says, hey, when you suffer, this is what you should do. And because no one's taught us what to do with our suffering, two things happen. We either stay in complete rage or we stay in complete denial. We stay angry at everyone in God, or we stay in denial, faking it with a fake smile until we break from the suffering that's been put on us. But with the psalm 88, what Psalm 88 shows us is this, that there is a model to lament, and it, I want to be careful. As Westerners, we're so quick to want to form, formulate answer to everything. This isn't a step A, B to C. like, if you lament, then you'll be okay. This is not it. These are some principles that I think will be helpful for us from this psalm. How can we lament? The first thing to do is this. Cry out to God. Cry out to God. It's a simple point, but one thing that we need to be reminded of. I'm not advocating that as we lament, we're not to be drowned in our emotions. We're not to be drowned in introspection. But we're to be honest with, although this isn't true, this this feels true, God, when I'm suffering... Although I know I am capable to be loved, the heartbreak makes me feel like I'm not lovable. Although I I think I trust that you are good, when you take away a loved one, this feels more true that you are not. And what God is not telling you is just stay in that, but God's saying, no, no, tell me that. Don't hide that. Because although it's not true, if it feels true to you, then it has some impact. And you can't just wish it away. You have to bring it first to God. Verses 1 to 2, it's, he starts out the psalmist by saying this, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. He is desperate that God hears his complaints. He is desperate that God hears his suffering. Prayer is often the hardest discipline because it's ultimately a true test of faith. Like when you come on a Sunday, like you're worshiping God, but you're also seeing people. When, you, when you're in a Bible study, like, oh yeah, you're, you're learning to be closer to God, but you're learning information. Prayer is a true test because there's nothing in it other than do you believe that God is real? And that is the reason I think so many of us struggle with it because it's a true test of our faith. I have a friend um, who's, uh grew up in the church, definitely would not say he's a believer. He would confess that, but because he knows I'm a pastor, he loves to meet up with me, and oftentimes when I meet up with him, um, he's not you know, completely in a sober mind uh, at times. I, I am, usually. I'm sorry, I am always with him. I remember in one instance, he's talking to me, and he's pretty drunk, okay? And he's like, hey, like, I grew up in the church. Why is it that, we don't pray and read the Bible a lot. You know, he's like drunk, so I'm just like, I I don't know, man, that's a good question, you know? Like, let me just get you home safely. And he's like, wait, wait, wait. If I believed that God is real, if I believed that he's sovereign, he created the universe, do you believe that, Eugene? I'm like, I mean, I'm a pastor, yes, I believe that. Then I would read the Bible every day, I would pray every single second of my life. Why don't you? And in his drunken stupor, there was a lot of wisdom. The reason many of us have difficulty praying is that ultimately we have no faith. And what we'll lament is, it's a step of faith that our God is one who listens. You know, suff- I talked about this last week, but suffering's greatest pain is not the pain of the loss or the, you know, whatever happened. Or It's not that, but often the greatest pain of suffering is that it makes you feel completely alone. It makes you feel completely isolated. The first step of lament is this. When we cry out to God, when we bring it to Him, God invites us to sit right next to Him, to be in His presence as we suffer together. Quick side note, too. Crying out to God, it doesn't even involve, have to involve words. You know, As you hear this, you're like, oh, man, I have to, like, I have to like craft this theologically perfect prayer, sermon, and all this stuff. Look, when you read the Psalms, None of it is theologically correct. And we'll get into it a little bit. There's a lot of heresy in the Psalms. The psalmist always speaks it to God. Maybe not to others, but directly to God. Why is that? Well, this, um, look, crying out to God doesn't even have to involve words because this, in Psalms, and uh, we didn't read it, but every Psalm that you read, there will be a small Hebrew word in the middle of Psalms called Selah. Selah, sela, sela is random. I was like, what What in the world is Selah? And all the scholars can come up with, they're not sure, but they are sure of one thing. What selah is, it's, it's a rest or it's a stop. It's basically saying, hey, don't talk, don't sing, just chill out. Just chill out and stay in that silence. Why? Why, why is that included in the Psalms? Well, one, I think to reflect, but I also think there's a deeper purpose of that. That often for us, there is amounts of suffering and pain, there's amounts of rage, there's amounts of tears that when we try and articulate it, there's nothing that comes out. There, there, it leaves you speechless. When a loved one is taken from you, when a friend betrays you, when you lose a job, whatever it may be, mistakenly or, or maybe with wrong terms, there's, there's times where it just leaves you with nothing to say. And God wants that. Uh, in Romans eight twenty six, Paul writes this. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. With groanings too deep for words. What Paul is speaking to you, what the psalm, every psalm includes is this. When we cry out and lament to God, It shouldn't begin with words. It should begin with silence. Look, so often the difficulty for many of us in approaching God is like, man, I gotta get everything kind of mixed up and and, uh, everything's mixed up and I gotta straighten everything out. I I gotta present myself perfectly. God doesn't want any of that. Silence is lamenting. And silence is entering deeper into the presence of God. Often many of us need this when we suffer. We don't need words, we don't need wisdom, we don't need a TED Talk on why this suffering will help us. What we need is silence. Ronald Ruhlheiser, he writes this about this silence. Our deepest prayer is when we are rendered mute and groaning in exasperation in frustration in helplessness. Wordless exasperation is often our deepest prayer. We pray most deeply when we are so driven to our knees so as to be unable to do anything except surrender to helplessness. Our groaning, wordless, seemingly the antithesis of prayer is indeed our prayer. It is the Spirit praying through us. Often for many of us to grieve our suffering, it does not begin with a logical explanation of why you're hurting. It begins with just coming to God and being like, man, I have nothing to say, God, but I am hurt. I am suffering. That's what it begins with. It begins with crying out to God. But secondly, as we cry out to God, it also involves brutal honesty. Throughout the psalm, in Psalm 88 or any other psalm, every psalmist is brutally honest with God, almost to a point where it seems a little tense, it seems a little wrong. Like, so often for many of us, we approach God like a meeting with our managers at work. Like, when you meet most of your managers at work, if they're not your friends, you don't use slang. Like, right? when you send your emails or DMs on Slack, you use perfect punctuation when you never do. When you walk into a meeting, you're making sure you're dressed right, you stand right, you sit right, and you say the right things. You wanna be politically correct. For many of us, that's how we approach God. We wanna be politically correct, we wanna say the right things, we wanna use the right punctuation. And we may feel even unholy to honestly present ourselves to God. But this is the whole point. As we come in silence, then the next step is to just unload what we got. Everything that we got. Even things you're scared to say to yourself. Like, throughout the text, I'm going to jump around a little bit. This guy is completely honest to a point where, like, if, a, if me or Jay did this in a pulpit, you'd be like, whoa, I got to leave this church. Verse 3, what he says is, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life life draws near to Sheol. Sheol is another Hebrew word for kind of like the underground, basically their version of hell. And what he's saying is like, God, I feel like you're leaving me in hell. Verse 4, I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength. He confesses shamelessly, I got nothing left, man. You know, people ask me, "Am I doing okay?" I tell them I'm okay. I'm gonna be honest, with God, I'm not. I got nothing left. Verse eight: You have caused my companions to shun me; you have made me a horror to them. I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. He's like, I'm alone. You know, one of the things in isolation that that keeps us in isolation is we're so shamefully scared to admit it that I feel alone. You don't want to feel needy to your friends. To your family. Yeah, you don't want to be like that friend that's like always having to take three hour phone calls with your friends, right? So you're always like, oh, I'm, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. But the Psalmist doesn't care. And it, he gets even a little more crazier. Verses 6 to 7, um, he begins complaining to God You, God, you put me in the depths of the pit in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with your, all your waves. He's saying, You know what? If you're fully in control, this is your fault. The suffering, the pain that I feel, the parent that I lost, the child that I lost, the friend that I lost—it's your fault. That's what he's saying. Verses ten to twelve, he begins questioning God. He almost in this mocking tone: Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave, or your faithfulness in Abaddon, which is just another way uh, word for a place of destruction? Are your wonders known in the darkness? or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness. He's, he's almost mocking God. He's like saying, like, God, you want me to praise you? Oh, well, I'm dead. Do dead people praise you? Like, do you, do you see that? It, it almost seems a little disrespectful to God. Verse 14, oh, Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? You know who he sounds like? He sounds like my son. Like, I remember one time my son came to me, stomped his foot on the ground. He's like, you're stupid. You mean? It's like, bro, like you watched three hours of YouTube, I just turned it off, right? This is what it sounds like. An infant complaining to his father in almost an unlogical way. And then the psalm ends. No resolution. No, like, oh, and I remember the faith. That, none of that. It just says, God, I feel alone, you left me in the darkness. Amen. Why? Why does he do this? Why is if you read any psalm, they all do this. Well, you have to realize that the pain of suffering, it's only intensified when you're never honest with it. Right? That feels like, oh, that's way like you can't say that. Well, that's how he feels, and let's be honest, often when you suffer, that's how you feel. You're just sick of everything. You feel like an infant almost wanting to complain and whine and cry. Look, when we honestly face and, and kind of articulate our suffering. It takes away all of our protections, our masks, and it bears naked who we are, that we're needy infants deep down inside, that we, we feel like we're adults, we feel like we figured our life, but the minute suffering occurs, you realize you are not. To lament is this, it's to honestly bring our pains, our grievings, our complaints, our scars to God, but also more important, not more importantly, but as important To yourself. It's to confess them because if you don't bring them to God, you never want to deal with your stuff. You never want to articulate what you're going through. Like we all have that friend when they have a breakup and and they're moping and it's like, dude, like like we're just having coffee. It's not a drama scene right now, right? And you're like, hey, are you okay that Sheila left you, right? And he's like, "Ah, I'm okay. You know, it's like, bro, just admit you're not okay. But so many of us do the same thing. We don't want to admit our pain, and rather than brutal honesty to God, we just, in shame, hide all that we're going through. Lament is this. It's crying out to God, and all of a sudden, bringing all of your suffering shamelessly and brutally and honestly to him. That's what lament is. And that sounds very elementary, but the question is, do you do that? Where do you put your suffering? Down down enough to a dark part of your soul where you don't have to face it, and the people that have to face it is not you, but those around you when it leaks. What God asks us to do is to bring it up to him, to cry out to him, to be honest. And lastly then, if that's true, what does a lament ultimately lead to? And I'll end with this. I think of lament as it's transition. It's not something that we're supposed to remain in, but it's a transition between praying and promise. It's a pathway from heartbreak to hope, to lament is to begin. I don't want to say it is, but it's the beginning of healing. Until you're honest with your suffering and pain, you're not going to be aware of what needs to be healed in your life. And the people that have to deal with it. It's not just you, but those around you: your wife, your husband, your kids, your parents, your friends. That's who's going to have to deal with it. Uh, I think I can share this, but uh, you know, Pastor J, our lead pastor, um, I think he shared on the pulpit. He's pretty burnt out. And I remember asking him throughout this year, like, are you okay? Are you okay? And, you know, the the Korean response is always this, I'm okay. But you have to show, like, you're not okay, you know? It's like your bloodshot eyes, back when you're like, I'm okay, you know? That's a Korean, the honorable way to do that. And and Jay did that for a while. And I was like, you know what? Respect him as a leader. But I remember at one meeting, um, we were asking, like, hey, how's everyone doing? It was a couple months ago. And we come to Jay, and he's just like, I'm burnt out. And all of us sudden, oh, whoa, like felt kind of uncomfortable. Oh, our leader is suffering and weak. Should we follow him, right? Internally, right? (laughs) And then I remember he's like, I have to name what I'm going through to have power over it. And I was like, man, that's so profound. For many of us, we don't name what we're going through because we're so scared. But what happens is then you have, you're completely under that power, you know, in Genesis, when God created Adam and Eve, they, the first task that He gives them is to name all of creation. Do you know why that's the first task? It's not because He's like, you know, they want to be, you know, zoologists or anything like that. It's because to name something is to declare power over it. And when He's telling Adam and Eve, is like, you have power over all of creation. In that same manner, when we don't name our suffering and our pain, the power dynamic flips shame controls you, the suffering controls you, the pain controls you, but when you name what you're going through and you lament correctly, it's the beginning to healing. Lewis Hyde, he writes this, sometimes we're unable to escape from a bad mood until we have correctly articulated the feeling. Articulation allows a slight gap to open between the feeling and the self, and that gap permits the freedom of both articulation, naming, lamenting your suffering gives you the freedom to name what it is and have power over it. See, when you don't name whatever you're going through, that suffering becomes entangled with who you are. You have no form of identity because you're so scared to name it, it becomes you. You are no longer who you are. You are no longer Eugene or Sylvia or Eli or Sydney. You are the suffering that you allow to remain hidden. But when you name it, it begins the process of, this is what I'm going through, and finally, this is who I am. To lament is articulate your pain, to allow God the freedom of his presence into that gap, into your soul. And as you do that, this happens. You no longer are listening to yourself, but you begin to have the power to talk to yourself. Um, suffering, it always tells you a story. It tells you something. It's whispering constantly, you are unlovable. You will never never get over this. The scars are too deep. And the problem is when we don't name it, it just continues to tell the story louder and louder and louder. But when we kind of articulate, allow that freedom and God enters in, no longer are you listening to yourself, but you have the freedom to talk to yourself, to preach to yourself. You know, in Psalm 43, 5, a completely different psalm, something completely different happens. The psalmist writes this. He starts talking to himself. He says, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why is it disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Why? How, how does he get there? Right? This is in the psalms, too. It's because in the psalms, you see this articulation happening that allows the freedom for the person to be finally talking to themselves. I'll tell you this. Uh, you can listen to every sermon in the world. There are better preachers than myself, better preachers than Pastor Jay. If, if I could listen to one preacher for the rest of my life, it would be Tim Keller. And you know what? I've listened to, I think, 89% of his sermons, like, like literally on, on his database. Okay, I know exactly how he's going to preach any text, and I can't get his voice outside of my head. It doesn't matter how many Tim Keller sermons I listen to doesn't matter how much information I get until I, res- I, I have the space to allow that truth to work. You need to lament to create that gap. And what happens ultimately is this. As you lament, as you name what you're going through, as you start, listen, or as you start talking to yourself rather than listening to your suffering, lament will ultimately lead you to Christ. In verse 10, the psalmist writes a mocking question. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do do the departed rise up to praise you? For that time, that's a question of mockery. It's a question almost of, you know, anger. Like, God, I feel dead. And do you think the dead can praise you? Well, if the New Testament comes, we know of one who allows this question to be answered in hope rather than mockery. If there's one in the future named Jesus who comes and says, yes, the departed and the dead I work wonders for the dead, and the part that will praise you. Why? Through my own suffering. Why does this particular suffering end in darkness? For a lot of reasons I just mentioned, but ultimately I think this. It also points us to the one who had to pray this psalm for 33 years of his life, and that's Jesus. Jesus lived and lamented all throughout his life. And even at the end of his life, it was not this joyful chorus bridge of, oh, Disney movie, everything I figured out. He gets nailed to the cross. At the Garden of Gethsemane, he says to God, if, please take this cup from me because this is too much. He's lamenting. And when he gets to the cross, he knows nothing but darkness. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does that show us? If Jesus did not abandon us on the cross, He will surely not leave us in our darkness. You see, when you lament when you're suffering, there's an invitation in all of this. The invitation is you will grow closer to Jesus than any joy or blessing can ever give you. Because this is the thing. Jesus did not live a life of joy or blessings. Jesus lived a life of darkness and lament, meaning that when you lament, when you're in suffering, when you're confused, when you're hurt, and you truly bring yourselves to God, you know who did the same thing every single day? Jesus. Truly lamenting your grief, your suffering, brings you closer to Jesus than any other blessing can, because that's what Jesus ultimately experienced his whole life. It was not just Jesus' suffering, but it was our own sins that put him up there. And through his life, death, and resurrection, we now have hope as we lament. That as we lament, it's not just to articulate, it's not just to you know, begin to heal, but it's to remind ourselves we are healed through the blood of Christ. So I'll end with this. So I, I don't know where you're at. Some of you I do, actually. Some of you I know you're suffering. Some of you might not even be here because you're suffering and you're on Zoom. I would just remind you of this lament, don't keep it in, bring it to God so that you can see the hope that you have in Jesus. Let's pray. I'd invite you, uh, you know, to be human is to suffer in this broken world. And I would invite you uh, to reflect on that. You know, we usually don't have time to. What we do in our vocation, in our church even, in our work, is to do everything in our power to ignore, to mask, and to numb that pain. So for a couple moments, what I ask you to do, and this could be even in complete, you don't need words, it could be in silence, is to bring whatever you're going through to God, in word or in silence, in prayer or in groaning, and just bring it to him and see where he takes you with that. So I invite us for a couple of moments to do that and we'll end in song.